And the third big difference is that it's driven by industry rather than uh, academia. And some of the curriculum in traditional HE or FE gets outdated very quickly. Um, mm. And in our model, it's always relevant because employers are part of creating this content, but also because you know we can update it uh, in two weeks, not in two years. Welcome to Tech Talks, where on today's episode, we're exploring the role of technology in learning. What's the role of tech? Is it to help augment the role of teachers? Is it to create virtual spaces where learning can happen? What's the right environment for the best connection between a student and a teacher? We've got three interviews exploring this from a number of different angles. This is Tech Talks, your weekly technology podcast with myself, David Savage, powered by the Harvey Nash Group, where we talk to leaders from across the industry and bring you some topical tech news. So joining me today, we've got Amber and Akish again. Amber, how are you? Yeah, I'm all good. How are you? Yes, good. Enjoying being back at home now that we're supposed to be away from the office? Uh, yes, well, I was actually in the office yesterday. Um, oh. Yeah, but... Um, but yeah, I am. I'm enjoying being back at home. It's a lot quieter than the office. I can actually get some more stuff done. Yeah. Um, Akeesh is one of the people in the office who's actually very noisy and stops me getting stuff done. Um, but yeah, no, it's good. <laughs> I love the look there. Akeesh, Akeesh basically being told he's a disruptive influence. Yeah, he didn't look very happy about that, did he? I got the right daggers. Um, uh, yeah. Because he can't argue with it because it's true. No, no, it is, that's the it thing. Is true. Not... Yeah, it is true. It is how are you, Akish? I'm all right, mate. I've got no one here to distract. Um, yeah, yeah, so yeah, I am. I am quite loud. And apologies, but you know, it, it's good though, isn't it? I get excited when I see people. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? I get excited. Yeah, no, it, it, it livens up the day. It does. It does. But this this kind of relates to what we're going to be talking about today because it's all about education and whether or not, you know, with with the COVID pandemic and everything else, you know, should kids be in classrooms? Shouldn't they be in classrooms? How best do we learn from each other? And I was just going to ask first of all before we get into anything else, I've put this on on Twitter. So if you follow um, at tech double underscore talks on Twitter, the question is. Why do you remember the teachers who made an impression on you at school? Uh, and I'll ask the same thing of you two. Why? What? What teachers made an impression on you? Mm, the ones who were like firm but fair. So, like, do you know what I mean like it's oh. in the ones that would, who could? I don't know how to say this. Like, they wouldn't lick your ass basically and tell you everything that you wanted to hear. <laughs> Although, as a teacher, I would assume they wouldn't do that. But what I mean is like they wouldn't just tell you what you wanted to hear. They would actually sort of like be quite hard on you, but it was hard on you because they wanted to get the best out of you. Um, yeah. And they like genuinely cared. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, you get some teachers that are just there because they did a PGCE and they just feel like they have to do it or they're just that's just kind of the next thing for them. And then you get some that are actually really invested and like, want you to do a good job. Like, I think I, I kind of learned the best off of those people. Hmm. Mine is to Mr. Abbe, my year 10 business studies teacher in year 11. Oh, a shout he was out. A part, he, was, mate, he was a part-time, <laughs> check this out. He was a part-time DJ and a basketball coach, right, as well as a teacher. And, and he had a law degree and he was a practicing lawyer at times as well. But this guy, Sounds like a busy he, man. <laughs> he had decks in like, you know, you used to have the cupboard in the back of the classroom. You used to have like a, a set of decks and we used to have like last period on Friday. And he just used to play the tunes. Like, literally, he just used to play tunes on Friday for an hour, old school garage. And we just all used to have a rave up. 
Like, it was, <laughs> what? That sounds it, brilliant. Amazing. And then my other one was Mr. Endicott, who was my cricket coach um, for, oh, for my second year. And I still speak to him and, and see him around. So top man. Um, but yeah, those two. But really, because they, they generally, they actually cared for you. And they actually were, they like what Amber said, they took some time out and it was, they yeah. were actually vested in your success. And whenever you did something wrong or you didn't get the right grades, I think sometimes they were more disappointed than we were. And it was like, yeah. it's, do you know what I mean? And yeah, man. So those two guys. We, we, had, a, we, we had a physics teacher called Mr. Thompson, who everyone loved. Um, he was super nerdy, but really lovely. Um, and he loved physics and that kind of, it, the the enthusiasm that he had kind of definitely rubbed off. But I think it also helped with the fact that he was always at um, Bedlington Terriers home matches. Like Bedlington Terriers are in like the eighth tier of the football pyramid. It's like Ryman's North something or other. But he was like devoted to watching the local non-league football team. So we often used to go down on like Tuesdays or Saturdays and watch them and he'd always be there. So the fact that he'd be at the football, he'd be like, oh, all right, sir. Probably helped him with kudos in school. And people were like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's all right. He watches the football, yeah. <laughs> which is such a basic thing, but probably helped with kids at our school. Uh, and he went to our school as a student himself. So he'd gone off to university and then came back and taught at his, his old school. So I guess he he knew what the what the town was like. Mm. But yeah, firm but fair. We'll come back to that because we've got three interviews and one of them relates directly to that. But we'll start by handing over to our interview with the founder of Zero One Founders, uh, Joycey, and we'll be back in a moment. So I'm joined by uh, Joycey John, CEO and co-founder of Founders Zero One. How are you? Or is it Founders O One or Zero One? Let's get that right. Zero One Founders. So we take people from zero to one in terms of skills in software engineering. Cool. There we go. So Zero One Founders. Uh Always worth checking these things before I go and say the whole wrong thing for 20 minutes and tell everyone and then they go, oh, I can't find this company. <laughs> How are you this morning? Great. Thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thanks. So thank you for making some time to chat to us. Just very quickly then, what do Zero One Founders do? So Zero One Founders is a new type of coding school and talent agency that is trying to address the digital skills gap and the diversity in tech challenge. Uh, it's a peer-to-peer -peer learning model that uh, takes anyone with zero coding skills to a full-stack software engineer and guarantees a job at the end of two years of learning. It's completely free, it's on campus, and London is just our first location, and we plan to launch uh, around 20 other cities across the UK and Ireland. So you said there, first of all, about the digital skills gap. Let's just define that so people understand the scale of the problem that we're facing. So uh, the word digital skills gap is very broad. You know, there are different types of skills gap, even within digital, the very basic skills and over, you know, nine million people don't have the basic skills that help them get online to do the basic transactions. And then there is the higher order skills that you require to build websites or apps, um, and that itself is in high demand due to the digitization of industries. And then there are niche skills or you know, more advanced digital skills, whether that is in artificial intelligence, data science, cybersecurity, blockchain. And these skills are very much in high demand. Um, and that's uh, what industry are looking for in terms of people who not only have um, mid to advanced level of digital skills, but also 
the skills um, to work in a digital world, which requires creativity, problem solving, communication and teamwork. So I think the word digital skills or digital skills gap uh, encompasses a whole range of skills within that. First thing I really want to ask you is how can you guarantee a job? Because that's that's, that's quite a claim, right? Yes. So that, that's a really interesting question. Um, the reason why we can guarantee jobs is that if you look at tech industry today, over mm-hmm. 130,000 jobs are unfilled um, just last month. That means there's a huge demand for technical talent. And then um, on the supply side, there is very limited number of people who are studying these subjects and coming out with the skills that employers demand. So clearly there's a demand and supply mismatch. The reason why we can guarantee these skills is threefold. First of all, uh, or guarantee these jobs is because of, firstly, we've got corporate partners who are looking to hire talent. So when a learner completes their learning, they can uh, join one of our corporate partners. Secondly, they can join our talent agency and work for a range of clients, anyone who's looking for software engineers in the UK or Ireland. And now with technology, it could be working for any client anywhere in the world. Um, And thirdly, learners have the option to set up their own entrepreneurial venture. And not only are they looking for jobs, they can then create more jobs. So those would be the three options learners have. And that's why we are able to guarantee jobs at the end of our training. With regards to those three options, one of them is is quite interesting because you you talk there about kind of the the vast number of unfilled um, opportunities and the supply problem, and it's great to hear that you're partnering with with industry uh, um, partners. Um, but employers are are picky. It, when I've spoken to people in the past about skills, about training, about taking on someone who is an apprentice or going through a through a skills academy, the pushback is I don't have time to handhold. So when you're dealing with industry partners, how do you mitigate or how do you try and manage that objection from from industry? I think that's why we are different and unique um, from some of the apprenticeships. Because when you're doing an apprenticeship, you are learning and working at the same time. And there you can get some pushback from industry that they don't have the time to train somebody up. Whereas the model we are using is that we are training this person for two years on real life problems where industry can get involved. They are involved in the curriculum they're offering projects and challenges. So over two years, they've already seen the person grow and build skills and work on challenges that they are facing. And then at the end of it, when they are hiring these people, you know, they go through their own recruitment process. It's not that they are guaranteeing a job when they start the learning. So Zero One Founders is working with companies like Nominet, Peloton, Faculty, and we're talking to a whole range of other clients, you know, from retail to you know, deep tech to uh, health tech and so on. So the companies themselves are not the ones that are guaranteeing the job. You know, they are mm-hmm. happy to contribute to the curriculum and hire talent. But Zero One Founders is the organization that's guaranteeing the job. So we are taking so- on risk, but uh, it's a unique model where, you know, we are successful when our learners are successful. You mentioned the word unique. Um, before we hit record, you you mentioned that it was a unique process in that it was peer-to-peer. What Just very quickly, what, what do you mean by that? How, how does the course actually run? Sure. So peer-to-peer learning basically means that you're learning from your peers rather than a teacher or a lecturer that stands in front of a class and um, gives a, a delivers a lecture. So basically, 
learners come on our campus. There's a gamified um, online system that they use and they log on. They, they're given certain quests and challenges and projects that they have to solve. But rather than solving it themselves on their own, they work with their peers. And that not only builds their technical skills, but also some of the other skills that I mentioned earlier around teamwork, problem solving, communication, and creativity. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we don't have any fixed lectures. Our campuses are open for learners to come anytime. And when they're on campus, they're collaborating with each other and trying to solve the problem together. It's interesting, isn't it? Because right now in industry, there's this, this interesting kind of dialogue going on about the need to be in the office, hybrid working, productivity versus collaboration. It's clear from what you're saying that you feel, because you, you, you describe an environment where you kind of go, well, why would you need to be in the classroom? But you clearly feel that that opportunity to get students together and to collaborate is really important to developing skills. You're absolutely right. I think it's not one or the other, right? You need to be able to work in a digital world. So for example, if we had another lockdown, you need to be able to collaborate online. And we we have tools and processes in place where you can do that. But I think in order to really get the most out of the human interaction and the learning, it works best when you are in the room and you can collaborate and brainstorm together. Um, so it's it's I guess it's a balance between um, efficiency by doing things remotely uh, and you don't have to travel versus, you know, the, the real collaboration that happens when people meet in person. How long does the course take? So the course itself is two years long, but because right. it's personalized, um, you can progress quickly or, you know, slower than usual uh, because you are basically working on projects and solving these different challenges. So I suppose when you start talking about it being on campus, it kind of opens the door for direct comparisons to further and higher education, in particular higher education. So when we're trying to close the digital skills gap, why do you think what you're proposing and what Zero One founders are doing is a better alternative to perhaps traditional university education? I think the, the key difference uh, or the benefit compared to a traditional model is that this model is much more driven by learners. So they are in control of their learning. They have full agency over what they're learning, how they're learning, and uh, you know they can specialize based on their interests. The second big difference is that you're not just sitting there and waiting for somebody to feed you information. You're actively looking at solving problems that are relevant uh, and that are real world. Uh, and the third big difference is that it's driven by industry rather than uh, academia and some of the curriculum in traditional HE or FE gets outdated very quickly. Um, mm. And in our model, it's always relevant because employers are part of creating this content, but also because you know we can update it uh, in two weeks, not in two years. So one of one of the challenges, obviously, facing the industry is the lack of diversity um, in in industry. Um, and you mentioned, um, again, prior to us actually hitting the record button on this interview, that you've got 37% women, which is massively over industry average. If you're kind of thinking, I think it's 17% of, of tech roles are filled by women globally at the moment. Uh, and you've got 55% of your students from disadvantaged communities. Why do you think you're able to attract that more 
um, diverse uh, cohort than than we're seeing action uh, ending up in 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 organisations uh, across the sector. Our aspiration is to get to fifty percent female, um, but so we are not there yet. But definitely, we are very proud of the fact that we are at thirty seven percent and not thirteen percent, which is usually what uh, is the case when you go to higher education and look at women studying computing. Now, the reason why we get a much higher percentage uh, of women and people from disadvantaged backgrounds and ethnic minority backgrounds is because uh, of three reasons. First of all, it's completely free education and it comes with a job guarantee. So, you know, there is no financial barrier, no academic barrier. We don't ask for uh, whether you have studied computing before. You know, 40% of our learners had no prior experience of coding. And uh, the final reason is that this model is um, something that is um, well known. So in France, School 42 was set up using this model of peer-to-peer learning. And it currently, this model operates in over 40 countries and over 100,000 people have been trained using this model. So we know that it works. And here in the UK, we are supported by some amazing pa- partners like Nominate, Peloton, faculty, um, SoftBank, uh, Sneak, and others who believe in this model and the potential for it to diversify the tech talent base. So at the minute, you're you're talking a lot to um, career shifters uh, and for people who are unemployed, which is fantastic, especially given the situation and the circumstances around the pandemic. There'll be a lot of people who fall into that bracket. Um, But I suppose if you're looking at this being an alternative to academia, you're also potentially focusing on on the pipeline issue and and a slightly younger audience, right? Yes, yes. So, you know, our offering is basically for three different segments, career starters, um, career switchers, and career professionals, people who are looking to progress in their career. Uh, At the moment, we are seeing a majority of people who've joined our program are mainly career switchers or career professionals. Uh, And we haven't seen as many of the early starters. um, And that could be because we are a new brand in the whole edtech space. Um, And also because the timing to attract a younger audience uh, is different. So you have to go through the, you know, the UCAS cycle. uh, And it's not just the learner who's deciding whether they're going to HE or FE. Um, It's also the parent who's involved in those decisions when you're at a much younger age. So for us, we do want to position this as an alternative to university, especially for those who don't want to take on a student debt and who want to uh, do a program which is much more relevant um, and is driven by industry. So it's interesting that you bring up parents because parents and teachers in this space can sometimes be unwittingly um, guardians of tradition <laughs> and they can they can without malice push women away from careers in stem uh, and and suggest oh well your skills might be better suited to x y and z traditional kind of stereotype of of, of, of kind of job roles do you think it's on an organization like yours to try and change the minds of parents or teachers or or is that is that a different link in the chain how 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 joined up does this have to be with schools and with say UCAS or something like that to try and change that um 
that opinion and those stereotypes around around the industry and make sure that more women and more people from from minority groups are actually included and and see it as a viable opportunity for them that's a really good point and i think parents teachers and if i might add a third one media plays a huge role in influencing young people's career choices um definitely there needs to be more role models uh, but also uh, more parity given to alternative ways of learning you know because our parents and our teachers have gone through a traditional model and they see that if you get a degree from an Ivy League university you're more likely to do well um in career but the world that we live in is different uh, i think there's a lot of evidence that by going to university and doing well in academics doesn't really mean that you will do well in life and in work so there there is a role that we need to play but also um you know the broader society and government and uh, businesses need to play that it is about changing mindsets but mm. also giving people an option so i'm not saying that this is the only path this is one of the many paths that you can take do, do, do you think it helps that skills themselves have a shorter shelf life if i think back to my parents their academic studies probably lasted longer in industry than certainly mine did. I mean, my degree bears absolutely no relation to what I do as a profession. And obviously, we, we now think in terms of lifelong learning. And I suppose if we're, you know, 70% of your audience is 24 to 60, you are talking to a lot of people who are out of work who are career shifters. If those people themselves are parents, I suppose that then reinforces that, uh, that attitude and that would filter down to children that actually learning can take on many different forms. I, I think there are two key points there because learning definitely can take on many different uh, ways and many different means because you can see that now a lot of younger people are learning through YouTube videos or you know TikToks. Mm. I think the there is no limit to what you can learn, but there is definitely a shelf life to knowledge. You know what was true you know maybe 10 years ago or 5 years ago is is not true anymore because there are new ways and new models that have come online like who would have imagined that there will be people um using electric cars or that uh you know there's a greater emphasis on uh, everyone learning online because of a global pandemic so there are things that we are doing today that wasn't possible a few years ago so i think the key thing there is not only are people realizing that knowledge has a shelf life but they're also realizing that there are many different ways of learning whether you learn online whether you learn from your peers or whether you uh go into a classroom or a, a traditional institution to get uh, knowledge the the key theme that will come out of it is that that there is a need for lifelong learning your learning doesn't stop when you finish school or university hmm. Now, look, last thing, you mentioned Nominet's uh, an organization you're working with. Nominet have been on this podcast. It stands to reason that people listening may well be from, from organizations. If they like the sound of the the kind of the approach you're taking to education here in terms of producing full-stack developers, and they think that they might want to partner with you, what's the best way to find out more about Zero One Founders? Thank you so much for that shout out. So uh, it'd be great uh, to bring on more industry partners to work with us and to meet our fellows. The best way is to reach me at joysy at 01founders.co 
or um, just contact us via our website, 01founders.co. So thank you very much for having me on the show. No, thank you for your time and have uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You too, Dave. I don't know what you guys thought about this, but immediately when I was listening to it, it cast my mind back to an interview that we did recently with Sophia Goldberg when she was talking about academia versus industry. Because Joycey talks about the fact that people don't work best on their own. They learn from each other and and you learn by trying to solve the problem together. And it's a completely different approach to education rather than just sitting in a lecture theatre and being talked at. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd agree, to be fair. And I think it's probably, I think with everything... With like technology and stuff and so many things at the moment that, you know, you can go to and watch and YouTube and read. I think there's so many tools out there now than before, um, even before my time. And it wasn't my something too long that I've been out of school. But I just think is if, if, but if there are people around you that you can actually talk to and speak to and learn in a group, I 100% think that's, that's always a better, better way of doing it. Um, you know, and, and, and agree with her, really. Yeah, I agree. I think as much as I said, um, Akisha's a bit oh, noisy in the, the old office, but do you know I mean, like, I think when you're around people, it just brings like the best out of you. Like, do you know what I mean, is it like you hear, especially in our job, I guess, like you hear other people on the phone and stuff, and then you pick up bits of that conversation. It makes you more confident. And I guess in this type of job as well, like if you go to uni and you sit in a, a lecture and then you just hear about like I don't know different problems yes you probably get a lot from it but then if you're actually there collaborating with people and you've got like real life examples and like, actual practical stuff that's going on that you've got to try and like solve that issue then I don't know that that's what you'd be doing day to day in the workplace like surely that's just kind of setting you up and giving you all that all the information all those tools already rather than just sitting reading a book and saying oh you could do this or this could happen like you're actually thrown into a situation where it's like yeah this has happened to this client or to this individual or this piece of technology or you know whatever it is um and then you're actually the one who's kind of at the forefront of solving that issue like i think yeah you're just naturally just going to learn so much more aren't you do you think it's easier to learn when you've got that kind of collaboration she talks about the fact that you know human interaction works best when you're in the room we're talking about being back at home not being in the office it does make a difference, right? As much as as much as homeworking is is great and offers a lot of flexibility, you do miss something by not being around other people. Hundred percent, mm. yeah. And and I think that's like, I, I I think, I think it's a very different way of working. Like when you're at home and you may be in a in a group environment at home. I mean, look, there's three of us here, right? Um, we're technically sat in a group, but we're online and we're in you know our own homes, but. If we were in the office, you know, things I find that conversation is a bit more natural, like when you're in the office and mm. it's a yeah. bit more like, um, you, you know, it's a bit more like you can point out things like, you know, especially where we are in the city. Oh, did you see that thing on Liverpool Street? Did you, you know, see this? Where's that coffee from? There's a lot more conversation. There's a lot better relationship building that can happen in an office than over a little tile on a laptop, in my opinion. Yeah. I don't know if and that's you just, old school. You just have... No, I agree with you, though. But I think when you, like you say, you sort of have conversations about things that happen throughout the day. Yeah. Like you say, if you go get a coffee or, I don't know, something happens in the office, and then it sparks more conversation. Whereas, like, if you're sat here on your own, I don't know, you'd be like, oh, what you've been up to or who you've been speaking to? Well, no one, because you're sat here on your I own. Also you know feel, I, mean? right, I also feel, right, I also feel it feels so intrusive if you just ring someone up for a chat. 
Like, it, I, 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 feel I, feel, like I, feel, I feel proper as much awkward. As you, like, yeah, me, I feel like you have to have a reason yeah, to call them. 100%. Or you have to justify, like, why you're calling. It's like, oh, I'm just calling because, rather than just being like, oh, you're right. I just sort of check in because if we was in the office, I'd have this type of yeah. chat with you. But because we're not, I feel like... Uh, you have to explain I, I myself. Think, I, think it's it's almost, yeah, I think it's almost like a, because it's a formalised channel and you have to dial out and the other person has to accept and give you access. Mm. I think it's a little bit like, hello, what do you want? More than like, like in the office, like Dave, you, you sit, you know, in, in a seat which is on the way to the kitchen and I'm always going up and down. And then I'll just come over to your desk and have a little chinwag. And I'll go, Amber's normally, you know, kind of sits kind of where we sit. You know, and I'll, I'll like. She's very unapproachable. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I'll, I'll say things, or I'll you know throw a stress ball at her or something Thanks, like that. Dave. <laughs> I just oh, you can't do that when you're at home, can you? Like it's, no, it's very no, weird. it does. It does feel really like I completely I hadn't really thought of it like that. It does feel a bit. It feels a bit intrusive. Strange, yeah, just intrusive and strange, just to call someone and just be like, just want to catch up and like see how you are, <laughs> and you feel like you just have to. You just yeah. feel like it's not normal to do yeah, that. Yeah. And, and that's a working environment where all of those barriers are kind of taken down and we're all a little bit older and it's not a learning environment where you naturally feel a little bit more, let's face it, you feel a bit more vulnerable because you don't want to say something stupid. And uh, typically speaking, you're maybe a bit younger anyway, so you're a bit more, well, less, less self-assured or less assertive. So it stands to reason in those environments, this is harder. Like, God knows what it must be like for 15 and 16-year-olds. Yeah. I would have hated this. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And do you know what? I was, I was having a chat with um, with a friend of mine who's got young kids on the weekend, and he was saying, like, him and his wife made a commitment, you know, that they're going to give the kids less screen time. You know, they're actually going to spend more time in, like, hobbies and crafts and all this sort of stuff. But what the, what the pandemic's basically led them to is those children literally just sit in front of an iPad or a laptop, like for school, you know, and, and then, and then like the parents are like, well, it's a bit unfair that the kids can't see each other. So why don't we organize like a zoom call almost like once a week. So all the kids go on. So he's like, and then he sat in front talking to his mate, Jake for about two hours. Right. But again, he's in front of a screen. Then when he finishes, mm -hmm. What can we do as a family? Watch a movie. He sat in front of a screen. He's like, it's honestly, yeah. he was like, it's just, it's ridiculous. Um, it's like you just move from one device to the next, don't you? Like you just yeah. try to get away from the laptop screen. So you watch the tally, then you try and yeah. get away from that. You go to your phones. Yeah. Like there's just, it's never ended, isn't it? Yeah. I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll take a very quick break. We'll come back in a second for part two and we'll have a quick chat about the next interview, which is with Felix from Go Student and some of the findings because it kind of directly follows from what we're talking about here. As mentioned at the end of part one, we've now got an interview to bring you. It's with Felix Oswald. He's the CEO of the unicorn company Go Student and we're talking all about some research that they've been doing with Kantar. So I'm chatting to Felix. Felix, you're the CEO of Go Student. Thanks for making the time to join me today. You're you're dialing in from Austria. Yes, from Vienna. I I would imagine that Vienna is a lovely place to be at this time of the year in the run into Christmas. 
Absolutely. It's a very historical place, beautiful architecture. Yeah, unfortunately, we are currently in another hard lockdown. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, one, one of my, my dad is a massive music buff, and, and something that I've grown up with is the uh, Vienna Philharmonic playing the New Year's Day concert. Yes. Uh, so, very <laughs> difficult people to get will tickets. be able to enjoy it. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, I understand. Anyway, that's not the reason that we've got you here to talk to us. Uh, we're here to talk about a study, a survey that you've completed uh, with Cantor where you've interviewed 12,000 families about uh, tutoring. Um, just very quickly, what was the purpose of the survey? What, why, did you, why did you conduct this? I mean, first and foremost, the education market is extremely fragmented. So also historically, you have seen a lot of innovation going on, but only on a per-country level. And there has also never been a lot of research how results in education kind of are comparable across different countries. So that was one of the main initiatives we wanted to conduct a survey across Europe to get better comparables, to see how were families affected by the homeschooling in the Netherlands versus the UK, how is tutoring seen in Austria versus Germany. That was the primary reason. And in terms of the families that you surveyed, typically speaking, what was the age range of the, of the children that were, that were being involved? It's between 10 and 15 years is kind of the, the average. Okay, so so very much obviously the age range that have been affected by online learning over the last yes. 18 months or two years or yes. so. Um, and I think you, let, let me, let, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but 50% are either using or looking to use a private tutor. Yes, that's correct. 50% either use one, have used one in the last school year or are currently looking for one. So that's 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 actually massive. Yeah, look, I'll be perfectly honest. If I think back to my school days, I wasn't really aware of any of my friends using private users. Yeah. Um, so that that seems like a huge jump forward. And I'm just wondering, is that across the board? Are there some countries that are, are very much more heavily leaning on that than others? Yes. Yeah, so we see it actually across all countries. We see a higher tendency in the southern countries than in the northern countries. We also see, for example, in the Netherlands, the Netherlands have actually a pretty good infrastructure where the schools themselves also provide uh, the families with after-school tutoring programs. So in that market, they use less private tutors and more kind of public public tutors. And I find it quite interesting because you say they're kind of after-school, and that, that would always be my, my assumption that it is after-school tutoring. Um, but that actually where... Uh, girls are concerned if we're talking about that age age group uh, four to seven pm is not a good time actually to be engaged in in tutoring yes it's better if if you do it a bit earlier because the late that gets in the evening and in the late afternoon the less concentrated uh, the kids are which i suppose is it's common sense, right? Yes. But it, it just goes in, in the face of everything that we're kind of used to, the idea that yes. children will finish school and then there is the opportunity for tutoring. So I suppose your research is then informing families about the, the sensible choices that they can make to try and get the best out of that time. 100%, 100%. And it's also quite interesting. I think in education, we have been in the past always very hesitant when it comes to data collection and data analysis. But it's a bit like a doctor, you know, when you're a doctor and you have a patient in front of you, you first conduct an analysis and assessment, where is the injury, and then you do the operation. And in, in education, we never, we never really did a proper analysis of the status quo, what, what is working well, what is not working so well. So now we can actually do that. We can collect more information around that. And now in the next phase, we need to yeah, build services, build products that, 
that help the families. And looking at the research, and I think this is this is some of the key UK findings. Sixty-seven percent of children prefer in-person classroom-based learning compared to online or hybrid approaches. Uh, and the research also states that strict teachers receive higher attention. Uh, and emotions such as joy and surprise often showed up during tutoring sessions. Um, so I thought this was all kind of quite interesting because yes. it kind of mixes together the idea that children do want to be in a proper learning environment. And mm -hmm. actually, where you've got someone who, who gives a bit more structure, there's really good response to that. Yes, no, we have definitely seen that that on the the stricter 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 teachers um, receive more retention rates. Um, on the other hand, when it comes to positive emotions, that is something they associate also with with uh, positive teachers. So at the end of the day, if you if you provide po a positive learning experience and you have kids who are like very happy in the in the sessions in the really long term, this has a better effect than than the other way around. Which stands to reason, right? I mean, when we when we think back to our own school days, we always talk about, you know, think about the teachers who made an impression on you, think about the teachers who inspired you. And there are certain teachers that stand out that were just very special. Yes. And that connection between tutor and learner seems to be just as strong today as it is now, which is a really strong indication that, yes, whilst tools and technology are great, actually getting kids back in front of, of tutors is really important. Yes. And it's also, and we are big believers in that, the quality of education depends on the quality of the teachers. So when you as a school or a school system, when you manage to attract the best talents to work in schools and inspire the kids, inspire the youth, that's what you want to achieve. And you were using uh, an intelligent emotion tracking tool called iMotions, right? To, to, to kind of collect yes. these results. Yes, correct. You want to tell us just a little bit more about that? It's very interesting. So if you look into the emotions of, of, of a human being, there's a certain amount of facial expressions that each and every one of us is, is, is doing. And a combination of these facial expressions define an emotion. So when we, when we have these live one-on-one -on -one online classes happening and we record these lessons, we can actually track the facial expressions of both the teacher and the kid. And then we can anal analyze their emotions and the correlation the teacher emotions and the kids' emotions have over time. That's the that's the background to that. So I I, I found it quite intriguing that your research states that only thirty three percent of the respondents in the UK were in favour of AI being used in their yeah. in their children's education. Is that because there's a misconception about what that really means? Because listening to you talking there, we're talking about tracking emotions and responses and then making better informed decisions about actually yes. quite traditional teaching methods yes. rather than i suppose when you say do you want ai to enter the classroom they probably jump several steps forward from where ai or what, what we're really talking about yes no I, you're 100 right so there's still this misconception that ai is maybe i don't know just exploiting the data of my child but that is actually not the case you can use uh, ai you can use technology to really properly assess the quality of education in a classroom or in a one-on-one -on -one setting. And then you can use this information and leverage that information to improve the services and, and provide greater value to the kids. So what is interesting is with every family that um, is using our services and is accepting on this technology usage, as soon as we explain it to them and explain them also like 
what we can do with that and how we can improve the, the service that the children receives, as soon as you explain it to them in the right way, most of the families then accept it and have no problem with it. And how are you going to use this research? Because you, 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 know, you, you go and have a look at the paraphernalia around Go Student and it's kind of building the number one global school. As you said there at the very beginning, there's this kind of disparity between different countries' approaches to education. How are you going to take this research and actually implement it in a way that, that translates to something that's different? I mean, I think first and foremost, publishing this survey and making it uh, free accessible to everyone who is interested i think is a first good step because if you have more information if you have more data available to school operators to maybe governments to other private education companies they can better understand their target group and they can better customize their services so publishing that i think is a is a first step uh, in, into into the right direction overall as you as you mentioned, our mission is to build the number one global school. So we started with providing one-on-one -on -one online teaching. And in the future, we want to expand our offerings, go into group lessons, expand into subjects, different subjects, uh, expand into skill set-based learning, go into the preschool area, maybe develop also some hardware that you can link with software. So it's, uh, it's a super exciting future, I think, uh, ahead of us in the next next years. Well, look, Felix, I think it's, it's fascinating research. If someone does want to find out a bit more about Go Student and what your, your company is up to, what's the best way for them to do that? So you can easily also access this uh, education report on our main homepage, gostudent.org. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's easily findable there. And also, if you are generally interested, I don't know, about job openings, about what our company is doing, our values, our mission statements, uh, this is also something you, you, you find easily then on the, on the main page. Well, look, I, I think it's super interesting, as I've said. Uh, thanks for sharing the research. And Good luck. Oh, well, have a very Merry Christmas. I hope, I hope Austria doesn't, or Vienna rather, does not disappoint. 100%. Merry Christmas to you too then, David. Thank you. Right, you were talking there about children being in front of, of screens. 67% of children in the UK, and this is from this research that Ghost Student that, we, that we've just played and uh, Kantar have been talking about. 67% of children prefer to learn in person, in classrooms, compared to online or the hybrid approach. And Akish, given what you were talking about a few minutes ago with regards to screen time, that's not really a surprise. No, no. But I think neither is hybrid, to be fair. Like, I don't know, man. I'm a bit old school. I just, I, I agree with those 67% of children. Like, learning in person is... Well, yeah, you're the kind of person that throws a ball around. You would have been the class clown. I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's still, it's now the office oh, cloud. The office. So things haven't changed I'm, I'm, very much. I'm, the I'm just a clown, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a clown. Um, I was the class clown, correct? Yeah, don't know where you got that from, but um, but yeah, I, I just think I, I think that in person in classrooms is 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 wicked, man, and and that's it's not just the learning, it's it's and and the education that they're receiving. It's more learning about themselves as well, what kind of people these kids are and their personalities and. You know, you, I say class clown, you might get, you know, you might get tripped up by someone. You might, you know, get wedged or whatever. Like, I'm, you know, I'm just giving these sorts of examples. <laughs> but, <laughs> I have to say, I don't, I'm trying to recall. I don't think 
that anyone ever did that. To really? Me. I think that's a stereotype, uh, right? Okay, please, please don't I bring think... that that behavior to I, I the want, office. I, I, I can't I, I, imagine I, I, walking to the kitchen and getting a wedgie. We, we, no, no, not at this age, because then you get done for something else. You know what I mean? <laughs> then you get done for assault or some sort of indecency. But um, no, but what I'm saying is. No, oh, that, that that sounds like bullying. I'm not, I'm not. You'd probably find that some of your male colleagues were wearing underwear that you were <laughs> or none at all. Oh, where, oh, where, where's yeah. it gone? <laughs> um, Moving yeah. on. Anyway, what I'm saying is, I'm not. I'm not saying that sort of behaviour should be that. But it, 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 <laughs> I'm glad it allows it allows these kids to man learn like about themselves, have a personality. Otherwise, if they're just stuck on this online stuff mate honestly they'll just go brain dead and i really feel for the next generation mm. of people like i really genuinely feel like they won't know what the buzz is like to like hear the school bell yeah, yeah. at three o'clock and then you're suddenly like boom out you know they won't know what it's like to hear mm. like the bell at lunchtime where it's like they're ringing but because because your football game's a draw it's next goal wins and the teacher's walking over to your field going ding 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 but you're still going because no team's won yet. do you know what i mean it's like they won't know what that feels like. That's yeah, but, that is so true. Like it's like little things that we took for granted, and like yeah, yeah. You know I mean, that's actually I mean, it's so mad when you put it like that. Like well, even just like the smallest thing, like the bell ring, and like they wouldn't even have that at home, no. would they? Like, I know it sounds really stupid, no. but that's literally just come to my head. Yeah. Like oh my god, that wouldn't that they, wouldn't happen. They wouldn't know, right? Do you remember like when your parents are dropping you off in the morning and they're getting late, and your mum's driving around like a lunatic because like she's got to get you. Or my mum did. Like if we were running late, she'd be running red lights swerving in and out and like <laughs> stop in front of the gate and then I'll be like whoa and she'll be like right go 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 run I'm running out with my like thing going oh trying to get into the school but like they won't know man all kids will know it's like wake up like half an hour before have your blue and frosties yeah switch it on and then just sit there come on man yeah do you know what I think as well it just it, I don't know like it just I'm not saying like people drag themselves out of bed and they just like sit on the you know, they sit there like 20 minutes before or whatever. Like, I'm sure a lot of people do, I but do. I just think it like, it, you know, that doesn't surprise <laughs> me. It just like puts a bit of like self-discipline and yeah. like urgency. And like you say, like actually having to get somewhere, like to get up in the morning and get from A to B. It's kind of, yeah. I don't know. It's just, otherwise you just rely why on. People like mutes. It's why yeah. people like mutes. Going back to your original point though, right at the beginning of, this, of the show, firm but fair, uh, Amber, you, you, <laughs> you, you very much cited that they do they, they did two pilot studies of part of this research right the first pilot study which was done in the spring of 2021 they the, in the interview I talk about um eye motions which measures um the movements of 32 points on the face of the people that, that go student were, were were including in the survey and strict teachers receive higher attention mm-hmm. yeah because you're, you're scared of them mm. aren't you <laughs> like you're not gonna I think it respects rather than yeah, scared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe not scared, but I just think it's disciplined. Yeah, right. exactly. And it's like someone that you know that you can't like walk all over. Do you know what I mean? And just like you know, when you've got supply teachers, and it was kind of like, oh, happy yeah. days. I've got a bit of a free kind of lesson here to do what I want. Oh yeah, supply teachers never. Had a good yeah, time, exactly. Right. So like, but with this, like, yeah, I don't know. It's just yeah, you get a teacher yeah. that you respect, so you want to do well for. They it, like, te- it teaches people to have respect for authority. I think. Which is, mm. which is, and it sounds really bad, but you know, and I, I sound like a double old idiot saying this, but like I just think the younger generation today just have no respect for authority. Um, mm. The young, mate, how old are you? I'm thirty, mate. I'm not, I'm not necessarily young oh, anymore, okay. am I? Really? 
What what do you consider as the younger generation? As in, like, what age is that? Uh, 16 to 21. Okay. I'd say, yeah. All the rest of us are are past our prime. (laughs) I was going to say, the rest of us are just old now. old, mate. The report's really interesting because it talks about positive emotions transfer from teacher to student and increase attention. So when emotion is shown by the tutor, the same emotion is present in the student at the same time. If the emotion joy predominates in class, students are more attentive. So it kind of goes back to my, my original point around, you know, the, the, the boyish kind of enthusiasm of our physics teacher, even though he's a bit geekish, everyone loved mm. him because he was such an enthusiastic teacher about his subject. He clearly loved mm. it. Like our history teacher clearly loved history. He was an absolute fucking nutcase, but he loved history. Mm-hmm. So everyone really enjoyed his class. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you get a supply teacher and they're a bit like, oh, just I'm here because I've been told I need to be. Yeah. There's no, there's no like glue to hold attention together. And the report, I mean, the, the findings that I sent over to you guys, I think it states that, let me get this right. Only 33% of, fa- of parents favor AI being used in children's education. And I guess it's, it's this misconception that AI means not human interaction or not teachers or not what we're all talking about here as being what makes education really good. And actually AI is just this tool that, that can help teachers and that isn't a, you know, we're not talking about replacing teachers. We're talking about augmenting what they're up to um, and making sure that they're better able to be attentive, to be strict, and to to bring all the good parts that we're talking about around teaching. Mm. Yeah, and I think going back to your point about like when you've got someone who's got a bit of what was it they picked up on joy, and then when the yeah. teachers had joy, the kids had joy. I don't know. People just like feed off like passion, don't they? Do you know what I mean like if yeah. someone cares? Like you just naturally makes you care more. Whereas someone's a bit yeah. half-assed about things and it's just not bothered, then well, you're just going to kind of be the same, aren't you? One thing I did find very funny in the research, the subject Latin evokes the most anger. I'm not surprised. I mean, like, really? If you got told that you needed to go to a Latin class now, be like, what is the fucking point? Uh, And the other one, one, mathematics. Really? Enough said, really. Yeah. What about about like drama and stuff? I imagine that's fairly joyful, right? That was always a bit of a laugh. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. That was my favourite. That and do you know what I used to not really like at all was art. Like I just hated art. Yeah, I don't know why. Yeah, I, I, I hated I didn't it. Get art either. Because they used to say, "Oh, be really expressive," and art is anything, and you can do whatever you want. And you do something, they're like, "Oh, it's wrong." And you'd be like, "Well, hang on a minute. How can you say that?" Because you just told me that it, art could be anything, and then now uh, it's uh, supposedly wrong. <laughs> yeah. I, I used to. Do you know what I used to hate art, and I used to hate. DT, do you remember design tech? Do you remember remember the little vices at the end of the the desk? I I just used to like, yeah, I just used to just put anything and everything in there. It was just like, what are you doing, Nikki? It's like, yeah. I I don't know, man. I I, I get it. AI, love it. Yeah, I definitely think it's something. But I still think schools are there for people to be in, to attend, to go daily. And it's the only way that people would, A, have a passion for education. And also, you've got to think about it, man. What about the teachers of tomorrow? Like, these teachers that are teaching and the ones that we've all mentioned, right? They ain't been around all day. Like, yeah, they're not going to be around forever. Like, how are people going to learn or get a passion for teaching if they're not actually going in school and seeing those and developing those relationships? you know what I mean? Mm. Um, yeah. And especially... Also- 
those guys won't want to take a like a job if they know that it's just it's this. Do you know what I mean? It's just they're teaching a group of kids on a screen forever, like because otherwise they just go into like an office job or something. Do you know what I mean? I I don't know. It's just the way that it used to be would is completely like flipped on its head. Yeah, because I've got a friend right, and she's um she's a deputy head um for a school in East London, and we've met up on the weekend and then gone to like Nando's for example for like lunch. And she's seen people from like young kids from a school, and like the, these kids are coming up to her going, "Yeah, all right, miss, how's it going?" Like all this sort of stuff, right? Or it's the other side where they're literally like they look at her and then they're like trying to hide and that sort of thing because it's a bit embarrassing. But I remember speaking to her and she was like, "That's the best part of my job is like when they can actually come and chat to you and mm. you know because at the end of the day." they have a vested interest in that kids not just education man in their safety in their like actual development right and if kids are feeling open enough to come and say look something might be happening at home you know this might be going on teachers are the people that are there to protect them um so and as amazing as as the hybrid world has been for allowing us to continue like god knows what this pandemic would have been like 20 years Mm. ago without teams and everything else allowing us to at least get on with our jobs. Um, it's not the ideal long-term situation. And, you know, the interviews that we've got on today's show and the reports and stuff highlight that it's not the ideal situation from a learning environment point of view, whether it's at school or in higher education. Yeah, I think that was a actually a really good point that you made, Akish, and I haven't really thought of that. I know we'd sort of joked about, you know, the bell going off and yeah. playing football and stuff, but actually... Yeah, the safety aspect. Like some people mm. need to go into a physical school rather than the virtual school to, you know, because they've got, I don't know, the issues at home or like you say, there is that, um, you know, they're not safe in the environment they're in at home. And and not even that, just to escape that, but almost if they want to go and open up and speak to a teacher, that's easier to do in person, isn't it? Rather than to have a real mm. sort, of, sort of like deep kind of like, you know, difficult conversation with this kind of virtual barrier. Especially, especially like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, if you look at like what happened last week in, in the UK with like, you know, um, baby Arthur and these sorts of things, if kids aren't safe and protected at home, how can they tell that to a teacher who's on the other end of a screen whilst they're at home? And the people that may be abusing yeah. or being bad to them are literally like two feet away. He ain't going to tell them, is he? Like, mm. you know, so it's just, it's just very, very difficult. And I think, even little things, man, like school discos. How, how are you gonna, you know, how are you gonna tell a girl that you fancy her, like over online Zoom and stuff? Come on, like you have to just flick your own lights, make your own yeah, disco. Oh, but I know what you mean. It's, it is. It's just like disco, simple, man. simple things that, like, that, yeah, that like was... a school disco, like that you would do. Well, I imagine, I imagine that they slide into each other's DMs on TikTok or Snap, which we wouldn't <laughs> yeah, have done, yeah, right? To be fair. But it used no, to be like, like people would do, like, rather than slide into the DM, someone would do an actual, like, knee slide across the dance floor and, like, slide to you and then have a conversation. <laughs> and, like, a boy, a boy did a, hang on. A boy did a knee slide Oi, to no, you. Not... But every, that, that was the yes. thing. Like, at disco, people would, like, literally, like, yes. rip their trousers because they were, like, sliding back and forth over to yes. people. Yeah, enthusiasm. <laughs> I, don't think I, I don't think I ever did it to impress a no, girl. No, no, I, I was that guy. Oh, no, I don't know if it was to impress us, but... It, I mean, it was just brilliant. I think I was knee sliding. I was such a tomboy. I was like knee sliding with all the boys. I was that guy. Literally, I was sliding. We used to have like little marks on the ground and you just have to running start and see whoever could slide the furthest. And then 
all the girls would be there and you would try to impress like yeah, the, the 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 fittest girl in the year and all that, man. Come on, that was that was that was me and the boys. We were loving it. Oh, right, God. we're gonna take our our next break. Come back in part three with another interview. This time with Rohat Raheel, um, where it will evolve on this little bit of conversation. This last interview is with Rohit Raheel, and it's great to get the perspective of someone who's just come out of the education system. And if you're in education, she is exactly the kind of role model that you should be listening to. Her experience is invaluable as someone who has switched quite quickly and very successfully into a technology career. And to supplement what we've been talking about throughout this episode, the impact of a good tutor really comes through and shines here because when she was at university, she very nearly dropped out of a course. Anyway, so we're going to play this interview with Roha. It's the last interview uh, before we wrap up today's show. So I'm chatting to Roha Raheel. Roha, before we get into anything else, what do you do? Uh, I lead the security awareness program at Sainsbury's. And how long have you been leading it? Uh, last year, June. Uh, and before that, you were studying? Yes, so I finished my degree in May 2020 and then landed a job in June 2020. So you've already made quite an impact on an organisation like Sainsbury's. Well, I hope I have. I mean, that's, that, that was always a vision, right? Um, I like to think I have, but when I do reflect, I feel like there's a long way to go, is how I like to put it. How did you find your way into the career path that you now find yourself in and you take us back to however far back you feel is appropriate to answer that question oh I've got to go really far back okay let's take you guys back to college sixth form um so I picked my A levels I had no clue what I wanted to do and I don't think many people do at that age right so when picking my A levels everybody around me was picking the science A levels because um at that time I suppose science was the way way forward but I didn't do that I picked a levels based on what I enjoyed doing so I enjoyed history I enjoyed um, government and politics I enjoyed psychology and I enjoyed literature English literature so I just I had no idea what I wanted to do I just went for what I enjoyed doing um so I did my a levels um when I applied for university again I had no idea what I wanted to do um, and again who does at that age um all I knew was that I wanted to go to university, but what career I wanted, no clue. Um, and my sister, uh, who's a few years older than me, was an audiologist. She is an audiologist. So everybody was going down the science routes because, like I said, that was just kind of the agreed way forward at that time. So I applied for speech and language therapy um, and I got it, I got an offer from the University of Sheffield and the University of Manchester. So I spent all of my final year at sixth form thinking I'm going to do speech and language therapy. Did I have an emotional connection to it? No, I just did it because I had no idea what else I wanted to do. And then I got my results, and then it we were um, I was just thinking about like university, and it, on results day something dawned upon me where I thought to myself I don't want to do this like this this isn't this isn't what I want to do like speech and language therapy I don't even know what it is like why am I doing this um so I went through the clearing process and I started looking at the courses available very last minute there was like everybody the whole household was on fire because we were all looking for courses that I potentially wanted to do 
so I came across many courses. I got in for so many courses, but there was one called computer security with forensics. At that time, it wasn't even called cybersecurity. It was computer security. This is like five years ago. I had no idea what it was, and I don't think many people did. But it caught my eye because it seemed interesting. It seemed niche. Um, and I spoke to the university. I asked them what this course was. I even told them that I've never done computing in my life. I have a background in literature and politics. Like, is this the course for me? Took a leap of faith and um, ended up doing computer security, which then changed to cybersecurity. How supportive were your family of going through the clearing process and that moment of this isn't what I want to do, but I'm not entirely sure what it is I want to do? I am. Um, I was very lucky. I my family really supported me, and I think the reason why was because I had an older sister who'd already gone through the whole university process. If I, I suppose, if I was a first child and I said I wanted to go down clearing, I didn't even know what clearing was, and um, never been, never even thought about it. So because my sister had gone through the process, I, I feel like everybody was more hands on, and it was just kind of okay. If you're not going to enjoy it, it's, it's better I know now. And um, what are we going to do to change that? But it was very stressful, right? Very, very stressful. Because at that point, you're not even at college anymore. Um, so you get your results and you walk straight out and like you never speak to your teachers ever again. <laughs> so here's a question. Go on. With, with the knowledge that you've now got now, yeah. sorry, with the knowledge that you've got now mm-hmm. and finding yourself in the career that you're in, if you had the choice to rewind to year 10, yeah. And 11, when mm-hmm. you're making, when you're kind of deciding w- w- your path and you're then making options for college, would you still do the same subjects? Yeah, I would. I definitely yeah. would. Because, David, I went for subjects that I enjoyed. And I think that for me was where the key to success is doing what you enjoy, not doing what you think you need to do to get into a career that early on. And um, even in in A level, I mean, in GCSEs, I did drama and I love drama and I've never done anything with drama ever again, other than when I'm acting in front of my parents. But, you know, um, I, I did the things I enjoyed doing and I'm a very big advocate for that, to do the things you enjoy. So even though you studied humanities? Yeah, and then made the switch to something more science-based yeah. at university, you'd still go back and, and, and pick humanities. Yeah, like I loved politics. Politics, like even now when I'm looking at the news, I'm like, I get this because I studied it. I really wanted to do international relations at university, to be honest. Like that, that was something I really wanted to do. But I think when I saw computer security, again, that was something that really struck my eye. It was something that I thought, I don't know much about this and I want to learn more. Um. So yeah, I would I would go back and do the same. It was difficult, mind you, when I was at university first year. Uh, I think it was December, three months into the course. I was sat in my lecturer's office telling her that I'm ready to drop out of university um, because I struggled because, you know, computing wasn't anything I'd ever done before. And I struggled with imposter syndrome for a very long time mm. and I still do. But I carried on and she made me carry on. And I'm so glad I did because it, it was a, such a journey. How did she make you carry on? Uh, I so <laughs> I had done like a a phase test and I got a first in it. So when she saw that I got like eighty plus percent, she said, "Yeah, there's no way you're leaving. You're staying. Like it's it's not gonna happen." <laughs> so she she kind of like convinced me. She said, "You can do this. You just need to put." extra work and I think at that time I didn't know what imposter syndrome was but I was really struggling with it um so I think she brought it to light a little bit more and I carried on do you think then that those subjects 
politics, drama, geographies, histories, those kind of subjects have helped you perform better in your role than perhaps having done maths, further maths, something along those lines and gone straight down the line. You know, some, something that would have paved the way, I suppose, for university to be easier. Mm-hmm. But do, do you think they've actually helped you do a better job in the, in the world of, of work? I think so, David. Like a lot of my work was, um, even now, a lot of my work is creative writing. How do I get colleagues to change their behavior? And writing a boring, like, um, you know, you need to comply to this because under this regulation, that doesn't, that doesn't attract colleagues. And I think the skills that I've learned from English literature, for example, or politics and critical thinking and looking at things differently, I think that's helped me. But I I suppose everybody's on their own journey. But Mm -hmm. for me, I think it's helped me a lot. Um, And even through the journey of university, my university career, my my academic career wasn't just me studying and that's it. I took on loads of part-time roles. I did loads in the time that I was studying to help me with my softer skills and I think I say this every time if I am doing well at my job it's only because of those softer skills see I find this really interesting because yeah. education as we're, we're, we're told to kind of think about it at the minute is you know we've got to encourage more young women if we want to address gender balance right yeah. we, want, we want to encourage more young women uh, going into FE and then HE to choose science subjects you're almost saying that's not so important. And at the minute, the women coming into industry tend to come in as career shifters later down the line, and maybe they come into a non-technical business facing role. You're almost saying that you can do that career shift mid-education journey and that to get more people into STEM careers or even STEAM careers, if we want to include the arts, you can make that switch between FE and HE. And that's, that's quite different and I suppose getting that message out to people and, and articulating it in a way that resonates with 17-year-old women yeah. is a challenge. Mm-hmm. I agree. I completely agree with you. And I think the when we think about cybersecurity, we think of a, um, a, I suppose we think of a certain type of person with a certain type of background doing a certain type of job. But I can sit here and tell you it is not just that. There is so much more to it. And... I have a technical background, I do, but I enjoy the business-facing side too. I enjoy speaking to people. And David, when I was picking what I wanted to do, I wanted to stay true to my principles, which was helping people. So when I picked speech and language therapy, it was like, I want to help someone. And I took that on in cybersecurity as well. I'm doing a role that it's empowering colleagues to protect themselves, protect their business, protect their families. Um, And it's not just about like a certain type of technical person. It's having a wide range of skills that can then help you pave a career. And I think it's so much more than just being technical, so much more being of a certain profile. There's just so much more to it than that. I mean, it's interesting that that, uh, you said that it's unrealistic to expect a young person to know what to do with their life at that stage. Do you think, do you think there is that pressure? I I certainly at that age didn't know what I wanted to do. And I tell people that it's, it's not a problem, but I suppose it's (laughs) the older that you get, the less attention people who are 16 and 17 year old 
pay to you. <laughs> so do you find that if you say that to people having just graduated, that it resonates a little bit more, that they take a little bit more notice? Yeah, for sure. Let me put it this way. I still don't know what I'm doing. I still don't know what I want to do. Ask me what I want to do in five years. I have no idea. So how do you, and this is someone who's like working. So asking a 17 year old, oh, expecting, I suppose, a 17 year old to know. A, it's a big ask because knowing what you want to do requires a lot of self um you know, self-reflection, knowing a lot about yourself. And at 17, I don't think you've done much of that. And even now, like, I, I think we change every day, every every year we are a different person. I definitely say that. And our needs now, um, our hobbies and what we enjoy doing changes with time. And I, 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 can, I know so many people who at 17 wanted to do something and today are doing something completely different. Either way, they're happy and that's the main thing. But having that expectation, I think it is unrealistic. Hence focusing in on stuff that you enjoy rather than worrying too much about credits or grades or taking a particular path. Yeah, I agree. Like today, right now, what I'm doing, security awareness. It was the first thing I said to um, <laughs> my course friend, I'm never going to do security awareness. It's not for me. Um, and today I'm here and I'm loving it. Do I know what I want to do next? Probably not right now, but I'm enjoying what I'm doing. And if I think about what I want to do in the next year or two, it's going to be driven by what I enjoy doing. And I think that is so important. Forget what people think you should be doing or what sh- what is acceptable. So like I said, David, at that time, it was science going, becoming a doctor, being a, being a dentist and doing all of those. I, I, I'm doing this prestigious with my, um, you know, quotes, prestigious courses. But really, it's about what you enjoy doing. And I, no matter what background, no matter what kind of career you go into, you need to enjoy it because you're going to be doing that for the rest of your life. Now, one thing that is levied a little bit at higher education is that it's it's too slow. It doesn't keep pace with the with the pace of change in industry. That we need to rethink how technology is taught at universities. Maybe maybe kind of learning um, a mixture of, of education and and working is a better blend. What what would you argue? What what do you think feels like the best way to introduce the the, the more diversity, more inclusion, and different types of people into the industry in a way that educates them and keeps pace with change? I think definitely a focus on vocational courses um, and getting that exposure to the workplace. I agree, universities are not the best at keeping up with the trends, especially with technology. Technology changes every single day. Um, course modules don't, okay? that It's it's as simple as that. I, I think where I got lucky or where I suppose the benefit of going to university was that I had a year to actually do a placement. So I got a whole year exposure into kind of an actual organization and I understood how organizations worked. I understood how to use Outlook. You don't get taught that at uni. Um, you know, you, you learn things that, you know, you don't you don't otherwise know what to do. And I did a year placement at the BBC. So I did information security at the BBC and I learned so much about what I enjoyed doing. And even more importantly, David, I enjoyed what I don't like doing. And that is so important as well. So that's really practical, good advice, because whilst we can talk about the merits, the relative merits of how you break into the industry and whether or not university education could change, it's not going to, that's not going to make a great deal of difference to someone who's studying for their A-levels right now and is is about to enter university or is in their first year of university. If the opportunity comes up to do a year in industry, it is, in your opinion, that, that crucial. Oh my God, yes. It is so important. I, I, I've said it to my friends as well, that if you get the opportunity to 
to just take it with both hands. That year gives you so much exposure to so many things. And it, it you build an understanding of how organizations work. And I always say this, when I first started Sainsbury's, the first thing that was said to me by my manager was to create a strategy. Okay, create, go, go away and create a strategy. What are you gonna do with security awareness? And I sat there thinking, well, no one taught me this at uni. Like, what, what, what does that even mean? What is strategic thinking? And you only get that exposure when you've actually lived and breathed it and take it with both hands, embrace the opportunity. It is gold. Well, look, I think it's been fascinating to chat. It's really interesting to get your insight on education and, and how you ended up in the role that you're in. Um, you you got an award from Sainsbury's recently, right? Uh, so two, actually. I don't want to gloat too much, but I got... Oh, an, no, go, go for it. <laughs> I got an industry award for uh, my security awareness program. And um, I suppose internally to Sainsbury's, I did get colleague of the year this year. So I'm really proud. Given you've not been there particularly long at all <laughs> and you didn't study science or maths... Yeah. um up until you went to university i think that's that's just amazing so well done and uh, a really good role model that i think someone who's who's studying right now can look up to so really thank you for your time thank you for having me right uh lengthy show today uh akish and amber thank you for your time um takeaways from your school days any last thoughts on the best thing about school? We've had knee slides and school discos. And <laughs> I think the knee slides bells. and school discos have done it for me. That was, um, yeah. Out of interest. Best bits. Like we keep going back to music. Does anyone remember what like the biggest hits were when they were at school? Uh, oh, I remember one. I can't remember what it was. Blue, S Club 7. I'll, t- I'll tell you who was big uh, when I was at school. Yeah, Blue, S Club 7. Jennifer Lopez, I'm still, I'm still Jenny from the block. Oh, that was. Uh, oh, I, I had a major be, fucking crush oh, on mate, Jennifer yeah, Lopez. Don't be fooled by the rock that I got. I'm still, I'm still Jenny from the block. <laughs> that was that was. I had a major crush was, on Jennifer that Lopez. That was big back in the day. Uh, she still looks ridiculous. She's like fifty oh, something, and it's like you see in the pictures oh, on the internet where it's like, is she a vampire? She's because she's not getting any older. She's amazing. Um, and then G, <laughs> G Unit, <laughs> bit of 50 Cent when it first came out, bit of PIMP. Oh, it's better. We had The Offspring. Um, oh, God, The Offspring were bad. And Stereophonics. Everyone loved the Stereophonics. Really? I'm, I'm showing I'm a bit older, right? I know the song. I've got like the lyrics in my head, but I can't think... Like who sang it or what? Probably Girls Aloud or something because you're disgustingly young. Yeah, we had, no, no, I think that was probably when I was in like an older school, but school disco wise, I can't think. School disco, man, S Club 7. Wigfield, Saturday night. Oh yeah, what was it? Yeah, well they did the little, that one and they did, yeah. One with the the duck in the background basically the whole way through. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All the classics really, wasn't it? Do you know what? I'd actually love to go back to like an old school school disco like if someone's having a i don't know the next work christmas party i'd love to make it themed and just be like it's not basically freshers week at university yeah but i'd just love to have like everything that you have at a school disco like tuck shop you know when your dad used to drop me off and it give you the little shrapnel that was in like the ashtray holder because <laughs> there was a touch up at the disco and you're going in there going yeah 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 man's got one pound fifty come on with a little with a little like plastic like pocket thing putting in the cherry sours standing there with your boys just sucking on like sherbets 
Oh my god! And you used to play the games, and it was like you know, you used to do the archers thing, and then you'd go down like trap someone. Yeah, yeah, Did you ever play yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, honestly, I would just love to go back to also, it. Also, you have disco. to dress up like you were dressed to the school disco. Yeah. So can we actually can we do this? Please? So so just boys have put to on a wear party because I've got I've got the idea now. I just want to run with it. Boys have to wear astroturfs <laughs> under their jeans. With a T-shirt. <laughs> in, our, in our new office, the opening party should be a school disco. Oh, my gosh. Dave, spread the word. Mate, AstroTurf. Anyone at Harvey Nash in the people team want to come to me in a case, we're happy to um, to get involved. Event organisers. Right, at some point in the past, this was a technology podcast. We hope that you Sorry. enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> Amber, thanks for your time.